Now, on the heels of the lessons we spent uh, the last few weeks walking through, and I trust our married couples did their homework this past week, yes? Amen. (laughs) I hope you did, or at least had some great discussions, or more than discussions. But uh, on the heels of that, the next two lessons we're going to look at here, Solomon's two lessons to his son, focus on two particular scenarios, two temptations that are surely going to be faced by this young man, by his son, and both of these temptations could lead to self-inflicted economic impoverishment. If the son doesn't listen to his father's teaching, if he doesn't hold on to it, if he doesn't follow in the ways of wisdom, he will all but ensure that poverty will be his lot in life. It will be the outcome of his life because of these two things, bad financial entanglements and dealings or because of sheer laziness. These are very two real temptations that the son is going to face. But not just the son. I think we all face these particular temptations in our life. All of mankind does. And just like the son, we would do well to avoid these two ruts on the path of life that can cause us to deviate from the way of wisdom. Both of these temptations offer something. They offer a promise of immediate self-gratification, of, of, of getting something the easy way or doing something the easy way in life, some kind of shortcut. The challenge with these two things are that they're a trap. They will enslave us. They will ensnare us. They do not promise what they, they do not deliver, rather, what they promise. In the long run, none of these paths are desirable. Now, the two lessons we're going to look at are very closely related. The first uh, part of the lesson that we'll look at is avoiding in, uh, these financial entanglements, not putting yourself up as security, as surety for someone else. And we'll walk through that in a moment because doing that is going to lead him down a path of possibly jeopardizing his future well-being. The second part has to do with awakening the lazy person from their slumber. That they're in this kind of stupor in life because of their sluggardness, their sluggishness, their laziness. So they are on a path that's going to lead them to certain impoverishment and they are to avoid that. So the father's main concern, the main point, is that his son is not to jeopardize his future well-being or fail to prepare and provide for it, all right? And we'll see as we walk through this how God's word warns us concerning these two things, these two temptations in our life, and provides the way of escape by means of wisdom, all right? So you're in the sixth chapter of Proverbs. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Hear the words of the Lord. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor... Have given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hand to rest, And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. These are the words of the Lord. And look how he starts this particular lesson. My son, which is the normal introduction, but but now he doesn't go into his normal uh, admonitions there, right? Listen, heed, follow, obey my commands. No, he goes straight into it. The, the, the potential foolish situation that the son may find himself in. He says, if you have put up security 
for your neighbor. Like there's an assumption there that at some point in his life, uh, the son is going to feel the, the necessity to help someone out in the particular way that is mentioned here, but it's actually a foolish action, not a wise one. So the chief warning for the son here is to avoid making impulsive and indiscriminate financial dealings or speculations. That word surety, security, speculation are kind of interchangeable there. If you've put up security or have become surety, what does that mean to put up security for your neighbor? What does it mean to give your pledge for a stranger? Now, we have to remember the culture of this time, right? This is ancient culture here uh, of the time of Proverbs, right? So there were no banks like we understand them. There, there were no credit cards that someone could go rack up some debt. If they were in financial need, they could use that. There weren't any lending institutions they could go to and try to get a loan to help them out financially. Right? But people would find themselves in tough financial spots like we do today. They, they would be in debt to someone else, and they would find it difficult to repay that debt. So one of the things they could do is they could give a pledge or make a pledge or give something in pledge as a guarantee that at some point they would repay this loan. And if they aren't able to repay it, then not only would they lose what they've pledged, the creditor could actually go after more. We don't have time to walk through all of this, and there's a lot of uncertainty kind of how all of this played out in these particular ancient times. We just know it's not like we understand debt and all those things today, but there was a mechanism in place to help people out when they got into financial trouble, and that was giving something in pledge. But not only could the person who was the debtor actually give something in pledge, they could actually enlist the help from someone else. Someone else could give themselves in pledge to help the debtor out. That may have happened by the debtor going to someone that he knew that was close to him, maybe approaching a a relative, uh, a close relative, or or a good friend and asking them to put themselves up as surety. Now, that word surety is is a financial term and also a legal term. The person who made themselves surety assumed responsibility for the repayment of the debt in the event that the debtor defaulted on his payments. Stopped making payments, didn't want to make payments any longer. Now the surety was on the hook because they have made an agreement to say, I will repay the debt that that person owed. Okay? They would pledge themselves as a guarantee of another's debt. Now the pledge that they would make was not just their verbal oath to do so. They actually gave something in pledge. Uh, and, and many thought of it to be something like a garment. They would give a garment in pledge, and that garment kind of stood in place for them. You know, and saying, if, I, if they don't repay, I personally will take care of the debt. Sometimes it was livestock. Sometimes it was material things that were given in pledge to secure the agreement uh, of surety here. So it was a legally binding verbal agreement. And that uh, phrase, have given your pledge for a stranger, have given your pledge, literally in the Hebrew means to strike your palm. Okay. So what they would do is strike their palms together some way. Maybe it was a handshake, a high five, a fist bump, some gesture, right? You know, they did something, right? So that was the agreement, right? That the person would make the oath, and there was that gesture with the striking of the palms, which would secure and seal the deal, right? Much like we do in business today, right? Now, even though we write out contracts, right, usually it's initiated initiated by a handshake, right? That handshake at one time, actually was binding, actually was, man, when you gave your word and you shook someone's hand, it's a done deal. Like, you're going to do what you said you're going to do, right? And so that's that's kind of the concept uh, here. Now, it's possible that someone could become surety for someone else, um, and there would be some financial gain for them in doing it. Not really sure how, like the, the concept of interest like we know it, is, it's not the same thing as you read uh, in the Old Testament, uh, but there might have been some financial gain for someone saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to pledge myself in surety, guaranteeing that person's debt, there might have been some financial gain for them, right? So in that case, then being surety could have also been viewed as like a risky investment, or, or maybe someone gambling because they don't know the outcome. Right? It's the luck of the draw, and I might actually make some money the easy way by putting myself in surety. The best modern equivalent I think we could think of is like when someone co-signs for a loan. 
Right? Someone uh, based on their own credit worthiness or their, maybe their financial picture is not able to secure a loan for themselves. So someone comes alongside and co-signs, right? And the co-signer is not the primary on the note, but they for sure are on the hook, right? If the other person does not uh, make their payments and defaults on them, they're going to go after the person who has signed on as co-signer. That's in a sense kind of what the picture uh, of surety here, and that's why it's ill-advised, right? The surety has made himself liable for someone else, and you better hope, right? That person better hopes that the person will pay their debts. They'll honor their obligations. So Solomon's teaching here is that this impetuous, impulsive financial entanglements that the son might get tempted to be involved in can actually jeopardize his future financial well-being. Why? Well, these things like some of the things we get into, can go bad. And they often do. They often go sideways. In this case, people might not repay their loans. And guess what? Now the person who's given themselves in pledge has to do that. So wisdom dictates that putting yourself up as surety is never a good idea. And it's never with a very maybe small, minute possibility where it might be okay to do that. But the general principle is not a good idea. Ill-advised, right? Financial... Uh, wizards and investment gurus will tell you, never co-sign for people's loan. Don't get involved in stuff like that because it's going to hurt you in the long run. Speculating on easy money and easy gains is not the path to financial wisdom. You'll not find that in God's Word. You'll find, not find that in Proverbs. Greed in business dealings, ignorance in business dealings have taken many people down. There's a huge trail of bodies that have been taken out by get-rich-quick schemes, pyramid schemes, all sorts of things, right, that play on people's greeds and desire to make money the easy way. You know the old maxim, right? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't, right? 99% of the time, it's, it's not. So what ends up happening here? Look, look at verse 2. If you're snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. Being surety is a foolish act because of the consequences. The consequences of making maybe an impulsive, benevolent mood, uh, speculation, like you might do it from a good place, right? I want to help someone out. Uh, but you're not considering the consequences. Remember, part of wisdom in life means considering our actions before we actually take them. Looking down ahead and seeing what could be the consequences. What are the pitfalls? Where, where are the areas here where I can kind of go off the rails and, not, and, and if I don't seek counsel and if I go down that path, what could happen? And wisdom would dictate this, this is one of those things in life that you have to consider. Even when you're saying, well, my, my heart is to help someone out that's in a tough spot. But doing this kind of thing that he's talking about here could potentially get you into trouble. Look at the verbs used here. Caught, snared. What are those? Those are hunting metaphors. What's a snare? A snare is a trap, right? Hunters use snares to, to ensnare animals, to trap them, lure them in with some type of bait that is camouflaged. And when the animal, the prey, takes the bait, the trap is sprung. And when the animal tries to wrestle himself free, the more he struggles, sometimes that, that, that snare, that rope around him tightens up. And this is what's in view here. And what is it that ensnares this young man who gets into these bad financial entanglements? It's his mouth. He's ensnared by his mouth. He's caught by the words of his mouth. What does he mean there? Well, his mouth is what got him into the agreement. The, the agreement he made with his very words, with his mouth, is the very thing that is going to ensnare him on the other side of this. The pledge he makes, the promise to repay someone else's debt if they fail to pay it. Our mouths might write checks that we are unable to cancel later on when things go sideways. And that's what's in view here. So what does that mean? It means that we need to be very cautious. Use wisdom before we get into financial deals of any sort. To really consider hard because the things we do can actually jeopardize our future well-being. We need to read financial contracts, right? This is the world we live in. 
right? When you take out a credit card, you're like, yes, I got a $2,000 credit limit. But it's got like an 88% interest rate, right? And you probably aren't going to pay it off monthly. Not a good move, right? That's the kind of stuff. We need to read the fine print. We need to get counsel. We need wisdom so we don't get ourselves into trouble. Now, we've all made foolish financial decisions. Lord knows I got a good list of those in my life. We do that through impulsiveness at times, right? We, there's a little bit of selfishness. There's greed. There's a desire to, again, the easy way, right? Um, we're ignorant, right? We don't do our homework. Sometimes it's just plain old stupidity right, that gets us there. We've all gotten into bad debt. We've all gotten into this trap in life in some way, shape, or form. And we're reminded of Proverbs 22.7, right? The borrower is the what? The slave to the lender. A slave. That's what we put ourselves in. We set ourselves into this position of being trapped, ensnared. And if you've been in financial debt, it is, that's exactly what it feels like, doesn't it? You have a master. You, you have someone driving, a creditor. You get calls, right, from these lovely people who just are so nice on the other end, begging you to repay, you know, what you owe. Not a good place to be. Think about some of the things we get into, like student loans. Student loans are one of the greatest snares to a person's financial future success. It's a sad thing. I'm bringing it up because obviously, right, what's going on right now? Oh, people are going to get some, you know, some of what they owe in student loans paid off by Uncle Sam, right? The government's going to take care of that for you. I don't want to get into the specifics of that. Don't get me going. I get a little hot under the collar, right? But, but why is that? Well, listen to this, all right? Experian, the credit reporting agency, states that student loan borrowers owe currently a collective $1.5 trillion in student loans, that's a staggering number, staggering number. The average student uh, loan balance right now is about $40,000 with high interest rates. Like, and if you just pay the minimum payment, your great-grandchildren will still be paying your student loans. Like, it's crazy how it adds up, right? So that's why people are like, yes, pay some of this off for me. Yes, praise God. Now, as a side note, You've seen all those memes being shared comparing student loan forgiveness to the same thing as having our debt sin forgiven and canceled. It's not the same thing. I just want to put that out there. People who post those things have demonstrated and proved that they're both ignorant economically and theologically, all right? I don't want to get into that. That's, that's another discussion, all right? How about credit card debt? Think about your own credit card debt. Right? What you owe right now to others by buying things on credit, money you do not have. Right? Look and listen to this. The, the average credit card debt of, of American households right now is another $1 trillion. And the average debt right now hovers around $15,000. That's just credit card debt. That's not mortgages. That's not car loans and other lines of credit. Right? This is just credit card debt. On top of people who have student loans and all of these other things. CNBC article from earlier this year recorded the average U.S. household debt is around $155,000. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Three quarters of American households are burdened, ensnared with debt of some sort here. That's why financial problems are one of the biggest stressors in marriage and in families. I mean, it's a big deal. Proverbs has a lot to say about this. God's word talks a lot to us about what it means to be a good steward of the finances and resources the Lord gives you. But we are in a culture, right, that is debt-driven, right, because we want stuff, we feel we need stuff, and we want to have stuff now. We won't pay for cash, we want it now, right? And Creditors are all too happy to say, you can have it now. Look at this wonderful low payment. <laughs> you know, <laughs> look at this is so accessible to you. How could you not do this? You have an extra $30 a month, and then you'll, you're paying this thing, you know, that, you know, you could have bought cash for 1000 but, you know, 10 years later, you're still paying for this thing. 
That's not wisdom. It's not wisdom. So what, what's one to do? Well, look at verse 3. The, the, the father's telling him here, Then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently. Give your eyes no sleep, eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like the gazelle from the hand of a hunter. How can the son get out of this terrible situation he's foolishly pledged himself as surety to? Well, he needs to save himself from it. He's like saying, son, if you get yourself into this stupid position, you need to get yourself out of it. You have to. And how do you do it? Well, thinking and considering this, the moment he became surety is the moment he was no longer in control of his financial future. No longer in control of his future well-being. Why? Because he's making a promise here for the future that he has zero control over. When he pledges himself as surety, who has control? Who has control? The creditor has control, right? The debtor has control, right? Because remember, he's, he's pledging surety for someone else's debt. And if that person says, you know what? I'm tired of making these payments. <laughs> I don't want to make them anymore. Or they're no longer friends, right? There's, there's that kind of fallout, right? What happens? He's on the hook now. And when he become, gets on the hook, and if he can't pay it, now the creditor is going to sue him. Go after him. Seize his stuff. He's not in control, though. The surety has no control over those things. He got himself into the hand of another, and now by his own hand, he needs to get himself out. So what are the admonitions the Father gives him here, right? Save yourself, right? And, and these, these commands here, these admonitions in the original language Hebrew here are like super strong. Like they are, there's this urgency uh, uh, for immediate energetic action to take place in him saving himself and getting out of this particular situation. Go, hasten, plead urgently. Go to the person that you made yourself surety for and get yourself out of that situation. Plead with them. Plead with them to repay their debt so that you are freed from that bondage. Right? That, that's what he's asking them to do here. Plead with them to get you released. Maybe you need to go to the creditor and say, is there any way I can get out of this? Please. You know, humble yourself and plead urgently. Give your eyes no sleep. Don't sleep until you're out of the mess you've gotten yourself into. And that's important when you are in financial debt. That's important when you are choked up to here because you're, you're drowning in, 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 in credit card loans and student loans and all of this other stuff because you got in over your head. It's astounding to me people I've counseled over the years who are struggling in debt and then I watch their life and they act like nope, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal that their credit's ruined, that they can't make their payments, and they're getting tons of collection calls, and, and then they come asking for help, but they don't stop eating out. They don't make any changes to their spending habits in their life. They've got the latest iPhone. They got the newest iPhone before the newest iPhone comes out, right? The, the largest TV, like they're spending on gadgets and all of the, They don't change anything about their life. There's no urgency to free themselves from this financial burden that they're under. That's, that's not wisdom, right? It's not smart. Spring yourself from the snare of financial debt like an animal wants to be free from the trap that they're in. Picture that in your head, right? A little animal. Let's go with little because they may be cute to you, right? Put their little foot in a trap, right? And the trap is sprung. What, what do they do? Like, I mean, they are squirming, wriggling, doing everything in their power to get out of that, to escape. And that is what is in view here. Like that's the imagery we need to have to get ourselves out of these financial entanglements that can jeopardize our future well-being. And I can't stress enough the importance of doing that, of getting yourself out of those things. We've gotten into them through our ignorance, through our lack of diligence, through our lack of seeking counsel, through our impatience, through our impulsiveness, and now we're trapped. A lot of us in here know what that feels like. A lot of us have walked through those things in life in the past and know what that feels like. We're like, we don't ever want to be in that place again. I remember when Betsy and I made our just first and only time we bought a brand new car from the car dealership. We're like, oh, we got a little extra money here. Let's go buy ourselves a brand new car. We've always had cars that 
have been challenged, road challenged. You know what I mean, right? There's always something wrong with them. Lemons, you know. Uh, and <laughs> we just said, wow, let's do it. We're both working. We're both making good money. Let's do that. So we did that. We got our first payment, $430. And after that first payment, we hated it every single month. We're like, this is the worst decision we've ever made. Because why? It was like a noose around our neck. You know, and we were tight every month. And it was like, oh, my goodness, there's more month left than there is money. You know, how are we going to do this? How are we going to make it happen? And I'm telling you, the moment we had a chance to pay that loan off, we did. We just said we're going to we could use this money to do something else. But right now, we just want to be done with that. And after that, we both felt like we were liberated from prison. It It was glorious. And we said we will never again a brand new car if we can't pay for it cash. And and that's what it feels like. And some of you have felt that way. Getting in over your heads, having cars repossessed, homes foreclosed, investments tank. Some of you may have had to declare bankruptcy because of things like this. There's many here who have lost money in in bad financial investment schemes or pyramid schemes or get-rich-quick schemes. Many have had their credit ruined because they haven't been able to make their payments on time for their credit cards or other loans. But the admonishment here is for us to be diligent to get out of that situation, to get out of debt. And there's a reason why God's word exhorts us to continually work hard and not look for the easy way to gain. You don't have to raise your hands, but I know there are people here who play the lottery every week. And they're like, oh, this is the way. How amazing would this be? Hit those six, and I am a multimillionaire. And then when I have that, oh, I'm going to bless everybody. No, no. No, no. I'm not judging you if you do. But if your desire is to do that, because that is the way to avoid hard work and do the hard things of getting out of a situation that you put yourself in, then, then that's not right. Wisdom says... Work hard. Be diligent. Get yourself out of that situation. Put your house in order. Put your things in order. Put your finances ordered because that glorifies God and that's the way of wisdom. It's the way of wisdom. We've been conditioned to get now and have now what we cannot afford. And we can't buy into that. We can't allow ourselves to get caught up into this, into this trap of, of having more, getting more, and living above our means. That's not the way of wisdom. It's not. Now, you know, our Lord taught a lot concerning money, wealth, treasures. And he tied all of that to our heart, to our heart. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is, right? Your heart follows what you treasure. Your heart follows what you have put value in what you go after, what you're consumed or obsessed with. So our financial problems many times stems from our view of money, how we view it, how we use it, uh, how we view material possessions and having them. Because we look to those things for security. We look to those things for stability and comfort. We can't do that. None of those things are going to make us happy. Stuff doesn't make us happy. But we want it to. We think it can. We end up trusting more in having stuff and money than we have trusting in God. And that's a trap. It's a trap. So what does Jesus exhort us to do? Well, he exhorts us to store up money. Where? To lay up treasures in heaven. To go after the spiritual and eternal treasure and value that over and above earthly, temporal treasures. There they cannot be seized by creditors. There they can't be stolen. There they don't decay. So what do we need? Well, we need to see money. We need to see wealth. We need to see financial investments and purchases through a gospel lens. Through a biblical lens. We need to value the eternal over the temporal. And that means we need to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. How we need that in this world that is constantly bombarding us, right, with messages, right, rival messages to the voice of wisdom. You need this. You deserve to have this, and you need to have it now. And here's the easy way to get it. Here's the easy path. Zero percent financing for 10 years. You deserve it. You deserve it. 
And some of you, if you're, if you're straddled with debt right now, this isn't to burden you. This isn't to, to, to heap guilt or condemnation upon you. Like, we have a culture that has created this, and sadly, we've just fallen prey to it. We've fallen lockstep with it. But I want to encourage you to get out of debt. If you need financial counsel, there's people in this very room that can help you in that area. Our brother Jose, I know, is going to be co-leading a financial peace class here starting very soon. I encourage you to see him afterwards. There's financial resources out there that can help you organize your financial life to get yourself out of this place. I want you to be convicted of anything. It's not that you have the debt. It's that God wants you free from that debt because it ensnares you. It chokes your life in so many ways, especially spiritually. And it's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling. So get help, and there's help available to you. And if you need that, see me after the service, and I will direct you and guide you to those who may be able to help you in that area. Let's look at the second temptation that the son May be faced with here. Look at verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Now, this isn't addressed to the son. This is actually addressed to the sluggard, right? So he's not calling his son a sluggard, but he knows that his son might be tempted to the ways of sluggishness or sluggardness. I don't really know what the real word is there, but slacking, laziness, right? Verse 7. Without having any chief officer ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Now, ancient times here, this is an agrarian culture, right? With a sweat of one's brow, working the ground, hard work and diligence, the ground would yield its reward, right? It would offer up its treasure, right? Commensurate with the amount of effort that was put in to cultivate it, nourish it, uh, and, and see things grow, right? And, and that was survival. That's, that's exactly what took place here. The ground, however, would not produce or yield any prize for a specific person. And that is the one who didn't work hard. Here called the sluggard. The slacker in some of your translations, right? The lazy individual. And throughout Proverbs, these two uh, ways, two particular ways of living are contrasted. The productive and enriched life that comes through hard work and through diligence, and the unproductive and impoverished life resulting from laziness and slothfulness. So this lesson, again, is addressed to the sluggard. The sluggard, if we're going to define it, is the lazy, good-for-nothing, unproductive, useless individual. Not very nice, is it? God's Word's not very nice to the sluggard, all right? It's pretty harsh uh, when it comes to this. These are the people who are sleeping their way through life. They're avoiding hard work. They're always putting things off, putting in the least amount of effort, always taking the easy way out of things every time. They go against the created order, the wisdom of how this world works. Is work, let me hear, is work a product of the fall? Like, do we have to work now because Adam and Eve screwed up? No, no, we know that. First of all, in the first act of creation, it's God working. Right? Our God has set the example here. He is working, and then he creates man, and he gives him work. Good work to cultivate the garden, to cultivate the ground, so that it would produce something beautiful, something glorious God has given it. And of course, after the, work, work become, after the fall, work becomes really hard. Part of the curse on this earth is what? You're going to work that ground, blood, sweat, and tears to try to eke out sustenance and living. And, and it produce what you need. Right? So, so, so work is not bad. Work is good. Work is great. But then we have this person, the sluggard, who wants to go against the created order here. Taking on as little responsibility as possible. Having the sinful response to the hard work that is necessary to produce from this cursed earth. They avoid work. Make excuses to not work. They give into the temptation you know, to, to not sweat, not prepare, not produce. And what is it that they value most? Well, it tells us here in the rest of this lesson. Value sleep. Sleep. Just going to sleep a little while longer. Favorite phrase is that. I'll do it in a little while. 
I'll get to it in a little while. I'll get to it tomorrow. So look at Solomon's rebuke here to the sluggard. And look at the command he gives him. He tells him to go to the ant. This is where it starts. With a lazy individual. Go to the ant. Consider her ways. Be wise. The sluggard, the lazy person, is now to go to the lowliest of the creeping things on the earth and watch them, observe them, consider everything that they're doing and get instruction from them. You're not getting it from anywhere else, but you need to go to the ant. Why does he tell them to go to study ants? They're fascinating little creatures, right? Some of us have spent some time just really watching them, you know. They're fascinating, tireless workers, Always moving, always looking for food in their industriousness, right? They're, they're busy all the time. They're motivated. They're productive, right? In the context here, he's talking about them storing up food, right? They, they understand the priority of work, the order of their work. And so they're not wasting time recreating when they should be working, Right? When there's the time to get food, find food, they, can, they get it, they prepare it, they store it up for the times when it's going to be hard to find food. The colder climates, right? They, they're ready to go. The sluggard here is told to consider and observe the ant because the ant doesn't need someone to tell them what to do. There is no one barking orders to the ant. Hey, get up, get busy, it's time to work. No one has to tell them, right? There's no hierarchy in the ant world, in the ant kingdom, as far as I know, you know, some of you who have studied the ant in great detail might have further insight there. But they're busy doing their thing, and no one's telling them what to do. But the sluggard, the sluggard is the opposite of this industrious, self-motivated, self-directed ant. The sluggard has no initiative, has no drive, no hard work ethic, no motivation. The sluggard is all talk and no action. The sluggard starts things and never finishes them. The sluggard avoids hard tasks, takes the easy way, and wants their needs met without having to work for them. Now, our society is increasingly becoming this way. Everybody wants a handout. Everybody wants someone else to take care of their situation, their mess. Now, I'm being very general here, obviously. But it's, it's a prevailing perspective and, and way of being in our world today. Many are content with others paying for what they should be working for. It's, it's not the biblical way, right? It's not God's design. It's not God's order. Many dream of a world presented in the animated movie WALL-E. Remember that? One of my favorite anime. I don't watch a lot of those, but that's one of my favorites. And in that story, what do we have? The, 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 the world, the earth, is like one giant garbage heap, right? Because humanity decimated the planet through their, you know, they're using up all of the resources and generating all this trash, right? So they're, you know, all the garbage is in the world. They create these ro- robots to manage the garbage, basically. And what do they do? Humanity takes to the sky, you know, in these floating cruise ships, right? Where, they, where, where these fat, I mean ginormous individuals are carted around in these lounge chairs on these floating cruise ships, right, with this robotic crew catering to their every whim, and they've got an endless source of entertainment, their little TVs as they're being carted around and floating. They're so obese, they can't even walk. But we're not far from that. (laughs) I mean, that's that kind of world, but the reality is the sluggard thinks about that, and that's their heaven. Like, that would be nirvana. That would be the ultimate to just live that way. Someone push me around, let me eat and engorge myself, not have to work, watch whatever I want, whenever I want, all day, all night, and sleep. That's the sluggard's dream scenario. And that's sad. I said, we're not far from there. Look at all the things we can do from the comfort of our home and never have to leave. Endless streaming entertainment. Most people prefer to work from home so they don't have to get out of their jammies. We get everything delivered to us now. Heck, I don't even have to go to the store. I don't have to go to a restaurant anymore. Like, I just, on my little app, and somebody goes, drives there, picks it up for me, and brings it, back, brings it to me, drops it off on my doorstep. Never have to leave the house. 
Amazon, boop, boop, whatever I want, delivered. Publix, Walmart, you know, boop, boop, Instacart, at my door, all right? I don't have to see other humans. I don't have to interact with other humans. I can just stay at home, right, in my own little enclave, and, and I don't have to mess with the world. <laughs> you can say ouch. I don't care. <laughs> I'm not saying it's wrong to take advantage of those things. I'm talking about the heart attitude and the perspective that says I don't have to work hard. I'd rather have a life of ease and comfort because that's my functional idol. That's what brings me safety and security and gives me a feeling of control in my life. I want you to see ultimately if you have that hard attitude, that's not productivity, that's actually laziness. We are creating in our culture the conditions that play to the behavior that the sluggard craves. A life of ease. Everything the easy way. Here's the thing. The lazy person usually doesn't think they're lazy. There are many people who claim to be busy, but in reality, they're lazy. Why? Well, because they do what they want to do instead of what they need to do. They follow after what their flesh wants to do, not what is priority and what is necessary and needful. Others are busy, but their lives are out of order. Their homes are chaos. Some are energized when a new project is started or a new task, but they can't complete it. Or they always need some extension, right? Uh, Because they can't meet deadlines. Laziness can take the form of a person, again, who is unable to finish tasks. Look at Proverbs 12, 27, the first part. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. What does that mean? Think about it. The lazy person catches an animal after hunting it, does the work of hunting, right, because they need it for survival, and when they have it, too tired. Too tired to skin it. I'm too tired to prepare it and process it, and I'm too tired to cook it to eat it for my survival. I want you to think about how much work do you actually do during the hours you are paid to work by your employer? Oh, I can feel the, mm. <laughs> the, the cheeks are clenching. If you're constantly checking social media, watching YouTube videos, sharing memes, watching Netflix movies, Prime, Disney Plus, whatever, playing games on your smartphone while you're being paid to work, You're not working probably as much as you think you're working. And ultimately, you're robbing from your employer. It's theft. There are many who work hard at avoiding work or delaying work. Right? When you think of laziness, immediately we think of those who procrastinate, right? That, of course, that's laziness, right? Waiting for the to the very last moment to complete an assignment, do a task, right? Because just, I just didn't want to get around to it. And then now it's 11th hour and I've got no choice now. I got to do something. And we don't do typically our best work. It's a lot of people who say, oh, I do my best work at the last moment. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's what you made yourself believe. You do. You don't. You don't. Speaking from experience, okay? Proverbs 26, 16 says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Right? It's one of the keys to diagnosing laziness in our life. Right? You often don't know or think you're lazy, but you are. You've convinced yourself that you're not lazy, but you're lazy. God's word doesn't, again, have nice things to say about the sluggard. Because the path of the sluggard is not the path of life. It's the path of death. It's the path of ruin, right? And that's why the slugger is condemned. Verse 9, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So Solomon's rebuke here is aimed at waking the sluggard up. Wake up! How long are you going to lie there? How long are you going to stay asleep? And don't you see the trajectory of your life and where it's headed? How long? He's admonishing him to repentance, to repent of his foolish uh, laziness. 
that, that it's time to get up. It's time to get busy. It's time to work. It's time to redeem the time. Because you're self-deceived in thinking that everything's okay and, it, and it's not. Look at the words used here, you know, regarding sleep, right? Sleep, you lie there, slumber, folding the hands to rest, right? Sleep is the defining characteristic of the sluggard. They love to sleep. They crave sleep. They can't wait to sleep. Waking up is like the worst part of the day for them. Sleep, more sleep. And the point being driven home here is that the sluggard doesn't even have any perception whatsoever of the unseen consequences of his behavior. Why? Look at the threefold repetitions of that word little. Little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Little. It's little things. Because for the sluggard, that's what they're doing. It's just a little little while longer. Let me snooze the alarm a little while longer. Let me get to that in a little while. Don't you love when your kid, you ask your kids to do something? What do they say? I'll do it in a little while. It's laziness. I'll beat that laziness out of them. <laughs> it's a little while longer. I'll get to that. I'll do it in a little while. The sluggard is self-deceived thinking that their little delays will not lead to their ruin. That all of these things stacked up in the course of life are going to lead them down one path. Ruin, poverty, economic impoverishment. That's the outcome of the way of the life of the, strong, uh, of the sluggard. It says like, like an armed man, a thief comes upon a, a victim, right? All of a sudden, by force, takes what that person has. That's how poverty is going to show up one day. It'll be a surprise to the lazy individual. But it's not a surprise that that would be the outcome of his life because he has laid the foundation for the outcome of poverty in life. What do we do? How do we respond if we're struggling in this area of laziness, of the folly of laziness? First of all, if this characterizes you, then heed the admonition of Scripture. Wake up. Wake up. See, laziness is not a character flaw. At least not only a character flaw. It's sinful. And there's things that we we do in life and we don't characterize them that way. We don't look at them as something sinful. We just just kind of test my temperament. It's my personality. You know, sleep. I need to sleep. I need my beauty sleep. Everyone needs eight hours. I need 15, you know. (laughs) Again, I do my best work, you know, the last minute. I get a creative rush and I can get things done. It's okay that I'm consuming all of this stuff. You know, I'm still finishing most of the tasks that I need to do. It's not just laziness and work and tasks, though. That kind of laziness always spills over to spiritual laziness as well, right? We have a lot of spiritually lazy believers in this world. They go through the motions, you know, in, in terms of, you know, looking like they're doing all of the stuff, but, but they're not, right? They go through life oblivious to the spiritual warfare around them. They're careless in their Christian walk. They're, they, you know, they're careless in, in studying God's word. They don't devote time or attention to it. They don't care. If, if we had some spiritual lens to look out into Christendom right now, we would see a lot of obese, lazy, sluggish out-of-shape Christians that need to wake up from their slumber. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 has this strong admonition for us. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil, so it's not time to be spiritually lazy. It's time to walk in wisdom. Don't walk like the fools. Don't walk like the unwise. Observe. Watch. Look carefully how you walk. Evaluate your life. Is there diligence? Is there discipline in your life? Are you being productive in the right things? I'm not saying are you busy. We can be busy about a lot of stuff we don't need to be busy about. And there are some of us here who are really busy at stuff 
And it isn't the stuff they need to be doing. It isn't the eternal stuff. It's not the urgent stuff. It's not the most important things or the things of highest value. Romans 13, 11, Paul writes, Besides this, you know the time. Consider this aspect of time. What does that mean? That is the discerning Christian who understands the times we live in, who has the right perception of the world, the way the world works, a right Christian worldview, right? They know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. And this is Paul writing over 2,000 years ago. How much closer are we to that time, brothers and sisters? A lot. A lot closer. Maybe another 2,000 years. I don't know. But we're 2,000 years closer than he was when he wrote this. We're to live the same way. Laziness is a reflection of a heart attitude that is not living in line with the new heart that we've been given in Christ Jesus. See, Paul addresses the lazy, the unproductive, and the idle in a couple of his letters. And they're strong words. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, look, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch. Ouch. What is he doing here? He's tying a person's faith to their productivity in providing for their own household. That's crazy. But it's the right thing to do. How else are we to evaluate it? If the person who is responsible, and in this case, it's talking about taking care of widows, right? And part of it was that the church was being burdened by taking care of widows that actually had people who could take care of them, right? There's, there's legitimate cases for helping widows, which the church ought to and must do. And then there were those who have believing children who could Take care of them, and they're not. So what is he saying? Hey, that's your responsibility. Stop being lazy. Stop being idle. Take care of what you're responsible for. Because if you don't, you're proven that you're not really of the faith. You're actually worse than an unbeliever. That's strong words, but that's the word, right? Let's take a moment and walk through a a passage in 2 Thessalonians. It's, It's lengthy, but we'll go through it pretty fast here. Where Paul is warning believers about the idle person. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Let's, let's kind of just walk through some of the, 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 the exhortations and commands that Paul has given here. He writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's a command. Paul's not offering a suggestion. He's not saying, I, Paul, not the Lord say. No, he's saying, this is a command from the Lord. And what's the command? That you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. Ouch. Like we would say, now that's harsh. Like, like that offends our sensibilities, right? Keep away from a brother who's walking in idleness? Why is he saying that? Because the lazy person, the idle person, the one walking in laziness is actually a drain on the life of the community of faith. That person sucks the life out of the local church community. And you know that. Lazy person is not just a lazy person and their effect is on their own selves, is it? No, it affects everyone. Why? Because everyone else now has to carry a burden that that other person should be carrying. And they're always needing help and they're always relying on someone else to take care of them. Now, there's some legitimate needs. Don't misunderstand anything I'm saying here, please. Like we're, we're talking about the general principle here that God's word is saying there are legitimate needs. There are people who have disabilities. There are people who lose their jobs through no fault of their own. There are people who are hardworking and industrious and fall on hard times. We're there to help for that kind of stuff. We're talking about the lazy person who doesn't want to work. Now I've been in, I've, I have several decades now of, of church ministry under my belt. I know I look so much younger than, than that, but, you know, Coming up on 30 years here pretty soon, okay? And through that time, I can't tell you how many people come to the church, call the church, text, text the church, text me, uh, you know, call the church phone number, looking for financial help. 
large church that I was executive pastor of, my responsibility was over to oversee the benevolence of the church. And we had a pretty healthy benevolence budget, a few thousand dollars a month that I could help our church family with. And one of my jobs was when someone came with a financial need, I had to now evaluate, discern their situation, why they're in that situation. Did they cause their situation and now they just want the easy way out of it? You know, are they looking for help because they don't really want to spend their own money? I mean, I had to think through all of those things. Did they lose their job because they kept showing up for work late, you know? Or they don't want to work and you're trying to counsel them to work and they're, they're not even looking for work, but they still want financial help? That is a burden on the church. It's not easy, right? And you compound that then with everyone in the church should be helping one another, right? And there are individuals, right, who are like, I'm just not going to do anything hard here. There's people who are going to bless me. It's idleness. That's laziness. And that's what Paul is warning against here. I'm saying that so you don't misunderstand here. The the person walking laziness is a drain in the life of the church. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. That's important because Paul is saying, look, here's the example to follow. Here's the example we lived out before you. We worked hard. We labored alongside you. We worked hard to take care of our own needs. Paul had his own trade, right? He was a tent maker by trade. He provided for his own needs through the work of his own hands. He could have exercised his apostolic right and said, well, the church has got to take care of me. I'm the apostle of the Lord. But he didn't do that. He goes, I wanted to set an example. Here's the right way to do. Here's the example to imitate diligence, hard work. That's the example. I want us to consider what kind of example are we to one another in this area? Are you an example of what it means to work diligently and to work hard? Would it be said of you that you have a strong work ethic? Are you the best employee in your department? Because I think if we're living this way, we ought to be that kind of example to others. That we would be the kind of employees that companies would be proud to have. We show up early. We work hard when we're there. We're productive during the hours we're getting paid to be. We're an examples to others in our conduct and how we, we respond to difficult situations and circumstances and how we address customers and how we, we do our work, the quality of our work, the quantity of our work. Do we complete our assignments on time? Do we put in an honest and hard day's work? Are we that kind of example? Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat. Ouch. The hardworking person isn't worthy for you to buy them dinner. Everyone should be doing this. Everyone should be working hard. Again, they're outliers. There are individual cases and exceptions. But in general, someone's lazy and doesn't want to work, it's not your responsibility to take care of them. That's the point. And that's not unloving, brothers and sisters. That is absolutely loving. That's, it's just right for a number of reasons we'll get into in a moment. The person who's not willing to work is not deserving of your benevolence. That means we don't indiscriminately take our resources and just cast them out to everybody. We don't do that. That's not wisdom. This is why the social programs in our world fall flat. They don't work. They're a waste of resources. Why? Because we give resources to people who don't want to work, who are lazy, who are idle, and we think just throwing money at situations is going to change their condition their life it's not it's not at all we're to employ wisdom in how do we do that how we use our resources to the person who's working hard who's struggling financially right now is down is down through hard circumstances maybe they have fallen ill right that's not their fault and they're struggling they can't make ends meet they have something unforeseen happen we're there to come alongside and help that's our responsibility we christian love obligates us to that 
where it does not obligate us to cast our pearls out everywhere, to even to those who don't want to work and who are lazy. All right? Make sense? For we hear that, among, that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I won't get into busy bodies right now. That's, that's another Proverbs we're going to get into. Now such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ what, to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. Have nothing to do with him that he may be what? Shamed. They should be ashamed, right? Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. They're still a brother, but they're boneheads. They need to be warned. They need to be disciplined, right? We don't help them. They're going to have to learn the hard way because, by choice. By choice. We need to encourage one another, brothers and sisters, to, to hard work. I've been so encouraged with the men's telegram group. Men, if you're not in that telegram group, make sure you are. See Todd, see Mark, Frazier back there. We'll get you into that telegram group, all right? And I love to see how men are encouraging one another to hard work, to get themselves physically in shape, to work hard and discipline themselves. And that is exactly what we're supposed to be doing with one another. It's exactly what we're supposed to be doing, right? We're not to walk in lazy. We're to be busy earning our keep and not expecting other people to take care of us. When we need it, because there's a situation that warrants it, absolutely, we help one another out. We need to encourage one another to be diligent workers, to strive to be the best employees, as I said, to be the best students. Those of you who are students, be an example. Do the hard work. Turn your assignments in on time. Make sure they're, they're done well. They're done for the glory of God and with excellence because of who you represent. Be the most reliable and trustworthy employees that any company would be proud to have. How I would love, and I'm not saying some of you aren't, but how I would love to receive a call from a manager at a company that says, man, I just want to let you know, I know that person goes to your church. I would love to have 10 more people like them working in this company. Like, that would be pretty cool to hear, right? That's the kind of people we ought to be. Our work ethic reflects whether we are in the faith or we're not, whether we're walking towards wisdom or away from it. The way we steward our time, the way we manage the resources God has given us is a reflection of how we are living for him and honoring him. And we need to consider that and walk in that. I'm going to close with this, or we need to consider Christ in all of this. Christ worked. I said it already. The world, right, was created by the work of our creator, the wisdom of God and the word of God. When we think of Christ in his incarnation, what do we know of him? Is that he worked, and it started from a young age, right, when he was found in the temple, and, and his mother came to him. He said, woman, do you not know that I'm to be about my father's business? My father has given me work to do, and that's what I'm doing. He worked with his hands. What was his trade? He was a carpenter. He, he took of, of the created world he made and recreated and fashioned organic material and made something of it that was useful and productive and purposeful. Look at the things that he said concerning his work, being diligent and doing what his father sent him to do, John four thirty four. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And when he prayed to the Father there in his high priestly prayer, he said to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He finished it. He fulfilled it. All the way up to his death, completing the work that he was given to do, for which he was sent to do. What did he declare on the cross? It is finished. Work done. Mission accomplished. Project completed. Salvation purchased. Jesus is a finisher. Aren't you glad that he didn't abandon halfway the work that he began? That he saw it all the way through, even though it was hard and difficult. Walking the path of suffering and pain and shame on our behalf. He finished the work. 
giving his life for us. There's nothing lazy about Christ Jesus. There's nothing you could read in the Gospels that shows any hint of idleness, slacking off, slothfulness, sleeping in late, avoiding work, making excuses for why he's not going to do something he said he would do. He gave his life for us. You and me, weak as we are, sinful as we are, falling short in our work ethic all the time. And what does he offer to us? Life and forgiveness and grace. By his spirit that he's given us, we are transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. And that means because we're in Christ, we are entering into work and productivity that he has given us to do. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation, don't we? Because we're saved, we work. We labor. We're productive. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, when you wake up tomorrow morning, get out of bed. Determine what the priorities are for the day. The things of highest value. Determine to be productive. Determined to work unto the Lord, to work hard and consider Christ. Do everything in your life and how you work, the quality of your work, how you deal with your finances, how you steward the resources and the gifts and all the things that God has placed in your hands and determined to do those things for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, I don't lay a heavy burden on you today because I want you to consider what Christ has done on your behalf. I want you to consider the work he did for us. And he is our example like that we look to to say, you know what? I'm not going to walk in laziness. I'm not going to be an unproductive, unfaithful son because the productive, faithful son purchased life and salvation for me and now has given me his spirit to enable me to be productive and to work, and to labor, and walk in wisdom for the glory of God.